What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. I'm Mark DeVoe and welcome, welcome, welcome to another in this crazy, crazy episodes that we bring to you every week of the Bestseller Experiment. And we would like to thank everyone out there in podcast land, all of our patrons and all of our academates at the Bestseller Academy who make this podcast possible. We salute you all and thank you so much. And if you would like to be one of those merry bands, you can become a patron of this podcast by simply going to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And if you are interested in taking your writing to the next level, joining me and Mark as your coaches, check out the Academy, the Bestseller Academy, which is academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Mr. Stay, how's spring for you in Kent this week? It's uh, the threatening snow tomorrow, so that's what spring is like in Kent. Oh. But, um, but no, it's good. It's good. I'm, I'm very happy. I, I, <laughs> I signed the contract for two more Witches of Woodville books from Simon & Schuster. That means there's going to be five of them. Five. Oh, this, is a pro- this is actually like a proper series now, isn't it? <laughs> I know. It's great. great. Moved on from trilogy to series. Yeah. yeah, yeah what happens good. after trilogy? Like, what is, Are there any words for like... Well, you have a you have a you have a quartet and a quintet and a sextet and a heptet and an octet and then non tet, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. This yeah. is, I mean, this is. What have you started here? Five books in. Where's this going? Like, what's the plan? Are you going to just keep well, writing these? Like, yeah, I mean, uh, the idea is to cover the whole of the Second World War eventually. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> That's bonkers. Do you know what I see visualizing my mind? I see you, Mark, as the woman ironing in that Monty Python sketch. (laughs) Here's another one. (laughs) Get that, get that, would you, Deirdre? That's what she says. (laughs) Pop that one off to the publishers, please. Brilliant. It's great, though, isn't it? But the thing is, what's really amazing, I mean, this has all started during the podcast. If you are new to this podcast, firstly, welcome. Hello. Welcome to the uh, the merry band of people that we have. Credible listeners, writers, editors, publishers from all all parts of the publishing world that, that join us each week. And there are many of you, many, many thousands. But um, if this is your first time, you, you might not realise, but like Mark started doing this series of books. I can't even remember when it was. When was it, Mark? Third year through the podcast, was it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, about the year three. Yeah. So you can actually kind of go back and document this entire journey yeah. for all you crazy kind of binge listeners. 
out there. Um, you can hear about the early stages of ideas and then you, the first time Mark got his contract. Now we're up to like, I mean, this is quite a seismic moment, Mark. We should really be having some call in yeah, the caterpillar. This is a call in the caterpillar moment, really. No, I'm on a, I'm on, I'm on a calorie controlled diet. I've lost 10 pounds in the last 20 days. So uh, I, you know, I've been, I'm in a very, very good boy. I can't call in this now. Those, the, my call in days are over. When's I'm the missus letting you, when's the missus <laughs> unlocking the door? That's what I want to know. <laughs> letting you back into the kitchen. No, look, I've got water here. I've been, yeah, it's accountability. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, the whole habit-forming thing. Yeah, my Do you know what's so crazy? Do you know what's bonkers about trim? this? Could we actually claim, and you're, you're like, you know, the poster boy for this, could we actually claim that if you do the 200-word challenge, you can also finally beat the weight challenges that people have had? Like, could we actually put that now on the website to say, you know, like going into competition with Weight Watchers, but it's stealthy <laughs> through writing? I mean, it could it could work, right? It could work, really. You are such an opportunist. You really are. You never miss a trick, do you? You never miss a trick. <laughs> but, you know, it's, 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 it's really fascinating, though, isn't it? Because, you know, if you miss this session, we talked about this about, I think, two weeks ago, and Mark was saying um, that through the discipline of the 200-word challenge, it was learning this accountability of this kind of little and often every day. And this is the thing that's now helped. Yeah, I've got this app and I have to put in everything that I eat and it stopped. It has stopped me grazing. It stopped me going, oh, biscuit, which I would do roughly 12 times a day and then wonder why half a packet of hobnobs had vanished. That is our fault though. That, I mean, I will, I will partially <laughs> oh, take yeah, responsibility yeah, 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 for yeah, that because yeah. I think I started the whole hobnob thing and I apologise to all authors out in the world that are now addicted to hobnobs. Yeah, but I sorry. do think that, so here's what, here's what I want to do. I want to hear from people. I want to hear from my lovely listeners that have tried the 200 word challenge and have found that they've started to be really great at new habits as a result of just doing. So tell us thing, other things that have changed in your life as a result of doing the 200 word challenge. And here's a challenge for everyone else. If you've got a big thing in your life that you've been trying to work at and change and you've not succeeded in it, try the 200 word challenge first and then get to that and tell us if it works. Because I, in my habit and science mind, I'm so fascinated by habits and it's become this, it's become like almost an obsession, but I would like to understand if there is a link. So, so give us, give me some stories. Just, I want to hear. Just if we do have lots of, because I think our guest is going to draw in lots of new listeners who've never listened to us before. The, the 200 word a day challenge folks is basically we all live very, very busy lives. We all, lots of people listening to this want to write a novel, but don't have the time. So the idea is take 20 minutes out of your day, write 200 words every day. By the end of a year, you have the first draft of a novel. Simple as that. And we know it works because pretty much every day on social media, someone tells us it works. We hear from people every every single day. So uh, get to it and um, sign up. It's all completely free. Be accountable. Look for the hashtag 200 words a day. I'm there every day logging my words and uh, keeps me on track, man. And the website actually to sign up is simply 200wordchallenge.com. How easy is that to remember? 200wordchallenge.com. So Mr. State, I think we just need to dive into our interview because I'm so excited to hear this. This is a first for us. I do think this is a first, isn't it? Um, and it's it's an interview that every single writer and every single reader, I think, and everyone who's ever loved bookstores, I mean, who who, who does that disclude? Like, no one. Exactly. Tell us about our incredible interview today. Uh, this is an interview of Martin Latham, and this is a real-life in-person interview. I cannot remember the last time I did one of these. Uh, they've all been on Zoom, you know, since even before lockdown, we were doing lots on Zoom. So we're in the same room together, which is really exciting. And weirdly, 
next week's is the same as well. But anyway, this is Martin Latham, who has been a bookseller for 35 years. He's a PhD in Indian history. He taught at Hertfordshire University before turning to bookselling. He is proud to be responsible for the biggest petty cash claim in Waterstones history when he paid for the excavation of a Roman bathhouse under his bookshop. He's uh, he's Waterstones' longest-serving manager. He started in 1988. He is an endless well of bookselling anecdotes. As you'll hear, he's deeply passionate about bookselling. He's also an author and his latest book, The Bookseller's Tale, is a celebration of books and bookshops. And we discuss what makes a great author event, how bookshops are evolving post-lockdown, and the question that every British writer and every writer in the world should be asking, which is, how do I get my book into Waterstones? He gives us the answer and much, much more. Brilliant stuff. So for everyone who's not in the UK, who's never even seen a Waterstones, imagine the best, biggest bookstore in your country. This is what we're talking about here. So let's dive in and have an incredible, fun adventure with Mark chatting with the hilarious and brilliant Martin Latham. Martin Latham, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. End lovely of a, to be here. Well, it's lovely to be here. We're in your bookshop, and it's at the end of a very long day. I think this is the latest interview I've ever done. Actually, it's mm. nearly nine o'clock. I'm usually tucked up in bed with a book book by now. Me too. But you've you know you've been here all day. You've been and you've just had a, a an event. We're sitting in the space where we did the Benaronovich event a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, is this now? You are Waterstone's longest serving manager. Is this is this your second home? Yeah, it is actually. I dream about it. And I also dream <laughs> about the old shop in Canterbury, which we relocated from. Yeah. I still have dreams about it. It is my second home. Yeah. And um, I could easily probably spend the night here as someone in Dornstadt when they've done events. So I've just had a really nice obs- event about an obscure Sheppey writer. Right. And I'm the, I am the, I investigate whether I'm the longest serving Waterstones employee. I'm certainly the Waterstones, longest serving Waterstones manager, right. 1988. But I'm not. There's three people with a smaller payroll number. So I've tracked down a woman who works in Notting Hill oh. who actually predates me. Oh, well, if you listen to this, get in touch. We'd love to get you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But 1988, that was pretty much the beginning of Waterstones, wasn't it? Was that? It right? was close to the beginning. Although when I joined, I felt like a new boy because there were lots of these sort of raffish public school, <laughs> awful, dodgery, junkie types who regarded me as a sort of. I don't know what I was regarded as. Yeah, it was pretty early on that old Brompton Road started. So I was interviewed by Tim Waterstone, small mm. office, and I was interviewed for Canterbury by Tim Waterstone. And I say in the book, embarrassingly, I was young. He said, so what of all the people who want to open the Canterbury shop, this wonderful building, why should I hire you? And I said, I almost blushed to confess, I said, because I'll set Canterbury on fire. <laughs> and I'd, we did have a fire in good zinc because of all the cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> Your other claim to fame is you're responsible for the biggest petty cash claim in Waterstones history. Can you tell us about that? That was when I'd heard an archaeologist came and he said, of course, you know, we weren't allowed to excavate the Roman bathhouse. The rest of the Roman bathhouse is under this shop. I said, that's amazing. And it preyed on my mind. And I asked him how much it would cost. And he said, well, thousands, thousands to excavate it. I said, well, how many thousands? And we... We'd had a good, it was December, we'd been having a good week, you know, and that we'd, the shop's made about <laughs> two million a year. Ever since it opened, it's been profitable. And so I got the money out of the safe 
paid them. They did the dig. They found all these things and bits of pottery made in Germany, which are now displayed. They found this hippocorse floor, and you can see the division between the cold room and the hot room, and it's really amazing. And you can see it now, even though it's in the basement of a recently closed-down upholstery shop. You're allowed to go ask and see it because it's a scheduled ancient monument, which I'm quite proud of. Wow. And then the invoice went around head office for a long time. It's like, what was this petty cash slip? And in the end, somebody phoned me up from the head office was in Birmingham, and I said, what have y'all been buying? And then uh, they, they thought it was a publisher. And it was just, it, in the end, it went, it faded. But they were puzzled by it for a long time. You have to record it on a spreadsheet. But yeah, it was the biggest petty cash that ever. Fantastic. We salute you. But look, we, we're here to talk. We've got some listed questions. We'll get to those in a minute. Yeah. But I want to start with your amazing book, The Bookseller's Tale, which is uh, is a celebration of books, bookshops. Tell us about this book. Where did this come from? Um, all it, it, so there are some books about books which are predicated upon, oh, aren't customers funny? Don't they say stupid things? Right, yeah. We're all stupid in another shop. We don't know where their knickers are in a minute. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, yeah, bag. Yeah. And this was really, I find customers inspiring, continually inspiring. A young bloke came in actually yesterday and said, have you got a map of Montenegro, mate? <laughs> and he was, I said, oh, where is it? What is it? And to my amazement, we had a map of Montenegro. He bought it. And with a twinkle in his eye, at the end, he said, I've decided I'm going to cycle to Istanbul. This is the bit I haven't got a map of. And he was about to go off cycling to Istanbul. So constantly meeting, inspiring customers like yeah. that. Um, and I could go on about them, about the woman who came in today and said how amazing Tolkien was. She was buying a £150 new Lord of the Rings that we sell with a letter written in Tengwa, yeah. for real Tolkien completed. You know what Tengwa is? It's a dialogue of Elvish. Um, but she was telling me that Tolkien's editor tried to correct him on the spelling of dwarves. Oh. And he said, it's dwarves. I wrote the dictionary. <laughs> so I, the book came out of customer experience and being inspired by customers. I thought, I really want to put this down. And the magic of bookshops, I've always loved ever since I was little. Going into them, my dad going into second-hand bookshops. And the very strange fact that with all the f- rapidity of technological change, the MP3's come and gone, the compact disc has come and gone, the internal mm. combustion engine is toast, apart from in a few years, you know, a few men with issues will be striving them. But, <laughs> you know, what other technologies lasted since Henry VIII's time? It's the same thing. You open it, you crack the spine, you look, you fold the corners. And this strange relationship I also see customers having with books, where they hug them when they bought them. Yeah. There's big debates about whether you fold the corner down. Should you write in a book? <sighs> oh, no, but all the great philosophers did. Um, <laughs> should you crack the spine? I mean, people People get mess, mess, messianic, is that the word? People mm. get really worked up about that. Yeah. And I see people who will kiss a book after they bought it, surreptitiously. Why? I don't know. Do people do that with a scarf? <laughs> so all those things led me to just throw this stuff down on paper and with various excursions into um, my frustrated my frustrated academic side where I researched medieval marginalia and stuff. So my tutor actually got in touch with me and spoken to her for decades and said she liked the book which really pleased me i didn't remind her that when i was writing my phd she said you know you're trouble martin you just you're just not fitting this into the paradigms you're just you're too chatty <laughs> so now i've been chatty and lots of people liked it brilliant absolutely brilliant you were just telling me before we were recording um alan bennett liked it yeah that was a big shock to get a letter the quote's not on the book but i had this typewritten letter and it was written with all the old mistakes, like the sort of letter you decipher in the John Le Carre on an old typewriter. He hadn't bothered to correct it. He didn't have one of those Tipex things. 
just saying how much he loved it and that I should write another one. So that, that made my day. And reflecting on him being a bookseller. He just loved the stories, particularly the New York chapter. And it's a smorgasbord. It's a mixture. It's a rag bag. It's a, it's a mongrel. And at last minute, I said to the editor, this is all over the place. How, you know, cause my agent said, you must have a narrative arc, Martin. But I've got the right <laughs> editor who said, forget an arc. I just want it to be like hearing you rambling away. And it is a ramble. And my editor said, it's very obtuseness is what works. So I always say it's ideal to read in a laboratory. You can read it in bits. In some ways, it's like, Stepping into a bookshop because you've got, <laughs> look, we're here, you know, we've got wonderful display here. There's books on essays over there. If I look over yeah. there, there's books on studying and, and crime and science fiction. You know, every, every page you turn of this, you're, you're in a different nook and cranny, aren't you? Well, that's why I asked for the cover to be like looking. A lot of people love the cover, like mm. that infinite sense where you go into a bookshop, you disappear into the stacks. There was a girl recently who asked downstairs, can I get to Narnia through this bookcase? And the book said, no, you can't, I'm afraid. And the little girl just said, oh, okay, that's what my, I try, I asked about the wardrobe at home and dad said, I can't, I can't go through there either because mum bought it at Ikea. <laughs> so, but that just shows the magic a bookshop holds. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um, there's talk of a, another one. Any idea where you might Well, go I didn't next? want to write another faint imitation, but um, uh, <laughs> relentless name dropping. We had Jacqueline Wilson do an event recently and she'd read it and said, it's just like a plum pudding. I love it, but I want more of the actual stories. I want more day-to-day stories. Right. The history bits are fine, but where it comes alive is where you, you go on about the stories of actually the day-to-day, like writing almost like down and out in Paris and Lo- down and out in Paris and London or the, a lot of the memoirs now you get for the medical profession, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Adam Kay, Henry Marsh, Chrissy Watson, the nurse. Give us the, the texture and the fabric of it because there have been a lot of famous people who worked in bookshops, but they don't write about those times. No. They're not still working on the till. And I never go in the back office because I hate offices. When I was 10, I knew I wasn't going to have an office job. I'm still on the till, and that's that's what I love, that yeah. uh, interplay with customers. So I'm going to write more of that. It might be less of a success, but there's lots that I want to get off my chest. Good. No, I can't wait. It's one of those things, when you, whenever you meet booksellers or old booksellers, They've all got a story. They've about yeah. that customer, that event, that day when that thing happened. You know, I've got a few myself, and it's oh. um, it's it's just a joy to hear them. I've just found out one of the absolute wonderful symbolic symbolic stories that I'd like. It's worth writing another book to put this in. Christina Foyle, who we know is a bit of a right wing nightmare, <laughs> regardless of the fact she interviewed me and didn't give me a job. Now, for but, the listeners, she she used to run Foyles. Yes, quite right, right, quite right. And she, um, if Foyles in its some would say heyday, somewhere others would say chaos days. Yes, chaos. <laughs> it, when the Second World War happened, she found out Hitler was burning books and she wrote to him and said, don't burn them, send them to me. And he wrote back the letters in the foil archive saying, I don't want to corrupt the people of England as well. So I'm going <laughs> to carry on burning books. And she was so angry when he started bombing London that she made a layer just under the roof to protect foils of hundreds of copies of Mein Kampf. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Genius. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, we've got some listener questions. Yes. Let's shall we rattle through these because yeah. there's some really good stuff here. Uh, we we got listeners. We are going to get to the one question you want answered. How do I get my book into Waterstones? We'll get there in the Understandable. end. Understandable. Um, Tanya Scott says hi from another Waterstones bookseller. Oh. Who was the most memorable author that you've had to do an in-store event? And this store and the previous store 
famous for their events, absolutely amazing yeah. events. So, in well, J.K. Rowling was great. Pullman was great because he was nervous and wanted a whiskey and we can only get 20 people because it was a second book. Nobody had heard of him. <laughs> Spike Billigan was extraordinary because he turned up in his slippers and dressing gown. <laughs> he just didn't want to get out of bed that morning. Um, I think and Tom Baker was hilarious, one of the funniest people. God. Maybe oh, Paolo Coelho was inspiring. There's some that change your life and there's some that are just so funny you love them and you want to embrace them because they just play it for laughs. Mm. And probably Tom Baker and Brian Blessed come into oh, those bless, categories. Blessed opened Waterstones and Epsom when I was there. Oh, wow. And I, I've never – there is a photo somewhere. I've never seen it. But he was great because he just climbed up Everest without oxygen or something. Yeah, that was, was the about book. the same time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was the book he was coming out with. And whenever we had a photo taken, he would shout, Knickers! at the top of his voice. Because <laughs> everyone has a huge smile on their face. He was fantastic. That's wonderful. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Superb. Laura Shepard says, favourite books you've sold in the last 10 years, favourite covers, favourite titles? Um, there's a new Arabian Nights that I bought myself that's come out. It's like this big with an intro introduction by Robert Irwin. And it's completely got the involvement of the Arabic world in it and the Maghreb right. for the first time. It's translated by somebody from Morocco, I think. And the notes are amazing. And it's a beautiful thing in itself. I don't like the idea of a coffee table book. And I've never had... Well, I've never had a coffee table, but I've never had a... <laughs> if I had a coffee table, I wouldn't have had a coffee table book in it. But I've got an old sea chest on the floor of my house, and I've put this book on there for the first time. It's so beautiful. It's called The Arabian Nights. It's about 20 quid, and it's bigger than the average book. And it's got all the notes in it. It's the complete Arabian Nights. And I saw it in Al-Saki Books, the Lebanese Arab Middle Eastern bookshop in Notting Hill. It's been there since 1978. So I thought, that's the imprimatur that it's, you know, it's kosher. Kosher. So that's one of the oh, most beautiful, yeah. satisfying books. No, sorry. Okay, not kosher. Well, that's one of the most satisfying books that I've sold um, in recent times. So you're still visiting other bookshops, getting inspired, figuring out, okay, what's new, yeah. what's different, what gives us a point of difference, that you're still doing that? Yes, definitely, and reading about them. And uh, I cycled to Paris with my daughter and went to Shakespeare's and that, I don't know, even though it's a heritage site, it's still got this vibrancy you know there's yeah. a bookshop in lisbon that's meant to be the oldest in the world or something but it is a museum you don't sort of ask the staff anything you just yeah, people visit yeah. it and there's dust on the books but shakespeare's is still vibrant and alive i'm trying to think of other books there's a lakota poet because i go to the lrb bookshop shop sometimes and in the basement they've got this huge poetry section and if you go there first in the thing in the morning after a couple of coffees or whatever your tipple is in the morning in that sleepy state first thing and you just read some poetry it's very easy to be very moved i found this book of lakota poetry on there um i've started a survey in the shop actually as to what staff what books make staff cry and that's quite fascinating oh, including right. some customers a few people have just written none <laughs> <laughs> as time goes on i'll think um of the for Laura, one or two other books that I really enjoyed okay, selling recently because okay. I've been a bit rubbish. Uh, Laura asks, what what input do Waterstones have into the marketing of Thriller of the Month? Mm. And that, let's just talk about promotion. Into the choice of it. Yeah, because yeah, that, that's general. changed a lot because when mm. I started out, well, I mean, the netbook agreement was still in place and then it, it 
collapsed and then we suddenly had three for twos and we didn't know what to do with that them. That was price fiction, guys, yeah, if nobody yeah. knows what <laughs> So uh, uh, three for twos have now gone. There are far fewer promotions. You tend to have the key monthly promotions. So mm. do you get input into those? Do booksellers get input into those? Um, we get input, especially into the children's one. There's someone here, at one time, this was the only shop that had two judges of the children's oh, really? prize. The wonderful Rachel, who works here, who I featured in the book, but she didn't want me to name her as the most inspiring bookshop of books that I've met. <laughs> and so we get an input into that. We vote on that. Um, yeah, there were votes right across the company for the book of the year. And I think when people champion books, as they do, individual booksellers discover books. Mm. It's amazing. Because mm. a book, as James Dorp would admit, anyone would admit, the pay in a bookshop, you're not, you know, you're not a, a city broker. No. And yet the passion and the infor- informativeness and the, and the desire to, to, to communicate and ed- educate, that sounds a bit worthy, it's amazing. Yeah. So that filters upwards. And we often discover the books which are picked up by head office. But there's a buying team at head office of a lot of them are ex-booksellers who meet the publishers and look at the forward titles and decide what the book of the month is going to be. But the book of the month is often decided quite at a late stage because often it's quite relevant to current affairs right. or right. in the Black Lives Matter or anything like that. Okay, that's interesting. Jeff has a question. Uh, Jeff White says, have, have you noticed a shift in the market with the rejuvenation of independent bookshops? Has, has that changed? Because the thing is, you because you have more choice in what you stop now, you're not being having all these three for twos foisted mm. on you and all these promotional titles. You get a bit more saying what you get to stock. Yeah. Each Waterstones is, is very different. The original thing with Tim Waterstones was it that was a chain of independence. It now that independence seem to be, you know, thriving, are you are you finding that's changed things at all? Yeah. I love the fact that there are independents that are thriving because they give us a good kick up the arse and <laughs> stop us from being complacent. It's like when Waterstones took over Dylan's. That was a challenge to Waterstones because suddenly there was no big competition. Mm. Then we took over Otica's because they were going bust, mm. and that was a challenge. Mm. And so the absorption of other branches and chains, which is often because they come to us and say, oh, we need you, we need you to buy us, um, is the danger that it makes us complacent. I think it's just human nature. If we don't get the challenge of somebody suddenly, say, selling secondhand books on the pavement or having a really good cafe with fair trade coffee or selling herbal tea with real tea leaves or something. Mm. Um, and uh, the, the, what's that gentleman's name? That was Jeff. Jeff, Jeff is quite right. There is a renaissance of independent bookshops, which is fantastic when bookshops are continually challenged it's a wonderful ecosystem that the other ones come up i can't think of an individual instance but we are still copying what independents do in many ways mm. uh, kate asks kate baker asks has the demographic of of book buyers changed over time i, I hear a lot oh children aren't reading as much as they used to but then the children's section seems to be thriving no, that's surely bullshit <laughs> Young people, I mean, my my 30-something, five children all have vinyl in their house and physical books in their house. Yes. And uh, recently someone in a queue on the ground floor, because there was a brief, uh, terrible period when we sold Kindles, somebody asked for a Kindle accessory, and there was an audible ripple of suppressed laughter going down the queue as if somebody had asked for the Sinclair C5, <laughs> sort of a heart album on CD. You know, it was, although I love heart, actually. Um <laughs> So I think that they're fashionable, and yeah, I, I, they're not going to not going to go away. And I think yeah, kids are certainly reading books. Young kids are definitely reading books. As for the demographic changing, the good thing is, um, 
as with traveling and bird watching, travel writing and bird watching, it's not, not all just white old men anymore, right, which yeah. is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so yeah. we're hosting a Jamaican poet next month whose first name is Winsome and she is wonderful and she'll bring lots of other poets down from the university. We've got a Sri Lankan poet after that. We do poetry by candlelight. And I'm finding, oh, basically, let me tell this, let me say this. I was frightened to go into Hatchards when I was young and I often questioned why that was in the 60s, mm-hmm. 60s, 70s. I just thought it was too posh. Isn't that yeah. strange? Falls yeah. was more working. That's, I'm so, I feel stupid confessing that. So I was one of those excluded minorities as a working class i sounded much more cockney then than i do now yeah. bloke i just thought it was too posh it had carpets and there must be lots of minorities and people who still feel that about a bookshop and people up to recently people lower their voice and whisper in a bookshop and the mums will tell the kids to whisper that doesn't really happen that's really rare now yeah 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 no i it, that really rings true there was um the the library was always very what we always went as a family to the library but bookshops there was a lovely secondhand bookshop in leatherhead that i used to go in and get all my old secondhand science fiction and it had that sort of dusty smell and it was it all cricket was always playing in the background you know and that felt cozy but yeah going into those big bookshops it's like you know do i need a permission slip to come in here it was always a bit you know and let's face it everyone talks about how wonderful independents are and we evil corporates put them out of business which is often not the case Um, half the time they wouldn't open sunday and they wouldn't let buggies in they didn't have a cafe yes but (laughs) i know this sounds controversial but some independents have been when i grew up appalling yeah elitist yeah run by an old bloke in a tweed jacket they smell of cabbage normally there was no toilet. You couldn't get a buggy in there. There was no disabled access. They were snooty. They were intimidating. It was old white male fusty, and it represented the literary academic establishment, which was just like that. It's funny you should say that. When we opened Epsom, um, someone came in and said, oh, have you got any boxes spare? I said, loads of boxes. How many do you need? And he said, oh, uh, you know, a dozen. Yeah, lovely. Uh, I said, what, you moving house? He said, no, you just put me out of business. And it was an independent bookshop around the corner. But I remember that shop. It never had anything in stock that I wanted to read, <laughs> you know, and it was. It was exactly that shop that you described. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, and I think that's the thing. People forget what. Waterstones brought over that kind of Borders, Barnes and Noble kind of yeah. American the inclusivity. thing. Inclusivity. I, I, yeah, exactly. And I remember being told that Tim Waterstone wanted books piled high, like, you know, fresh bread out uh, at a bakery kind of thing. And it was a revelation. It really was a revelation. Yeah. Then the three for twos and the overstocks came and it got a bit much. But, you know, it's, yeah. it feels like there's an equilibrium now. Oh, it's it? been through <laughs> terrible times. It's I don't know. I haven't seen Game of Thrones, but I imagine it's a bit like that clash of empires. <laughs> I've been through seven managing directors. Uh, when I first was young and Waterstones Kensington opened and I could go in there at 10 to 10 at night and it was open. And I couldn't believe I could sit and read for as long as you want. That idea of sitting and reading a book for as long as you like. People used to go into foils and put a bookmark in there, go in every lunch hour and yeah. read the book completely. <laughs> what was wrong with that? It's wonderful. Um, Steve Gowland has a question. He said, what predictions do you have for book selling in the next few years? So do, you, think, do you see any changes? I think... Well, Amazon bookshops have closed, which is good news for us. So they realise that that you need people who are going to speak to you. Yes. I think we need staff who are going to talk to customers. Mm. When our computer system broke down, there was a 
everyone's stressing over it in a board meeting. I, I don't know, go, I don't move at this level. Everyone's stressing over it in a board meeting. There's a pause, and a managing director said, "Well, great, they'll have to talk to customers because <laughs> they're constant challenges." You bend down, look at a computer, yeah. and I think as well as the much used word curation. Uh, where I will buy a book that I know I've got in my shop because I'm in some, some amazing little bookshop like Libraria or Brick Lane and it just looks so great there that I'll buy it because of the context. So we need to display and love books and not just have a load of books laid out uncurated. Mm. We need cafes. We need more. I would like, I've always dreamt of having sort of maitre d' person at the near the front door of this bookshop right. who would just be there all day. He could have a cup of tea, he could have a chair. Actually, maybe that's me. And he could just talk to people and answer questions. <laughs> You've got a red chair by the door. Yeah, maybe I'll I should there. be yeah, that. Yeah, you maybe should. I should yeah. be that. So that you came in, you had a point of contact, like a hotel reception. Mm. And you could say to that person, what should I read? You know, I've just read this and I don't know what, you know, have you got this book and there's a three floors. Rather than to queue up at the till in the middle of transactions where lots of great conversations, maybe that wouldn't work. <laughs> and more emphasis on buildings. I don't think bookshops should be these soulless blocks like the mm. Primark we can see if we glance out the window. They shouldn't just be an outlet because no. all the customers I speak to and children especially talk about bookshops as architectural joys. Yeah. So you get it in Bachelard Poetics of Space, you get it in Pratchett, the, li the library in the Infinite yeah, Library, yeah, this yeah. MC Escher feeling. You get it in, if you remember the film, The NeverEnding Story yeah, yeah. with the guy who played Columbo at the beginning, I think wins <laughs> the bookshop and that's a magical bookshop. There's obviously one in Harry Potter. What's going on? All those Woody Allen films were amazing encounters and meetings. What's that line? Somebody staring at you from personal growth. I think that <laughs> yeah. might be when Harry met, met Sally. Sally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, we 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 neglect our buildings at appeal. That's some of the changes that will I think will happen in bookshops. Um, yeah. In the very near future, do you events? Do you like see we do. events? Yes. Well, we've got a couple of questions of that. So we're going to get to that. Thousands of them. Are there any genres you think are about to be big, about to... Yeah, isn't it funny? I've seen Feng Shui come and go. Um, <laughs> I've seen vegetarianism be a subset of healthy eating. In yeah. some shops, it makes me angry. It's still in diet as if it's some sort of weird aberration. Now it's a whole bay. Yeah, I've seen manga go from two shelves to four or five bays. Obviously, gender is going to be big. And the gender section at the moment you'll see here is, is all about... Um, it hasn't got much about gay men in it. Um, and there's the Robert Webb book on being a man. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big change that will be fantastic. And I think we need, we, we need a new name for the gender section. You know, we name our own sections here rather than going by the head office classifications. We get a sort of somebody who's good at lettering to paint the name, but we need a new name for that section. We need a climate change section that isn't depressing. And should that be near nature writing? Right. Uh, nature writing will expand. Why is nature writing different from travel? I don't know. There's this whole new genre of wonderful nature writing with a lot of women coming in, far more personal stories, not yeah. just Etonians in tweeds spotting <laughs> eagle owls. Uh, and I think, so nature writing will change and morph. Because of Instagram, poetry is taking off, and we can all be snobbish about that. But I'm sorry, Byron. You know, you're just not, you haven't got it anymore in terms of sales. We'll stock you. I do stock you, but they're not reading Don Juan. But Instagram is driving an interest in poetry that is extraordinary. Mm. And I think TikTok's changed the landscape. It's meant to be the biggest thing since Harry Potter for the book right. landscape. They're reading right. Ulysses again because of TikTok. 
in right. piling up Ulysses <laughs> because somebody mentioned it on TikTok. I haven't read a bloody thing. I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> um, so all those sections will change. There'll be a TikTok generated section. Perhaps it would too, be too awful and sort of lapel tugging to say, come and see your TikTok books. But, you know, is that any worse than the Serendipity Bay I installed in Waterstones a while ago? Right. Um, yeah, poets will get bigger. Fiction will get more diverse. Gender will expand. We'll have a section where you can find books on climate change and what to do about it that isn't stupid gift books that are in themselves landfill called things like don't have a plastic bag um, <laughs> and i think because the public are very the public are very discerning they're going beyond hype they're not gonna you can fool some of the customers some of the time but not all of them all of the time and they've always been way in advance of publishers yeah uh in terms of fiction what's what's hot at the moment and what's working Oh, God, that's that's a hard one. Um, TikTok-driven books. Colleen Hoover, obviously, who I don't know about Colleen Hoover. Ugly Love is a book that's making people cry. Lots of students are coming in and young people. Casey McQuiston, people on Netflix. Uh, a lot of stuff like The Witcher and Game of Thrones is obviously driven by television. And, you know, a lot of these geeks were buying those books decades ago. Books in long coats were just quietly coming in and buying those books. And Robert Jordan. I never thought it would come to wheel of time but now <laughs> now they're buying wheel of time all 11 volumes because that's on television yeah so i think and i don't think that's a bad thing that um whatever you in the entertainment industry you'll know what it's called the shift to those platforms mm. whatever that's called streaming and streaming yeah. i don't think it's a bad thing that just as that's you know injecting a great creativity into tv it's injecting a broader spread of book recommendations into books um but there are certain books like The Bell Jar and The Donna Tart that I'm looking at that just don't stop selling. Yeah. My daughter told me recently, I never knew this, that The Bell Jar is what really turned her on to think, oh, yeah, books. Yeah, books are all books. I've got something. There's certain perennials. Um, at, which is, at the risk of sounding like an old man that say that things don't really change, certain essential strands of fiction don't change. Um, Harper Lee and, I mean, extraordinary phenomena like... Um, Capture the Castle, Dodie Smith. Oh yeah. What is it about that book? It's got mm. something magical. Those those that selection of comfort books won't won't change, but like all sections, they become more diverse, more representative, more translated stuff. Look at Elena Ferrante has mm. kept up a small publisher who no nobody have heard of, mm. and they're trading off that. Why didn't the big publishers mm -hmm. find that? I think it. I think to summarise, because I'm going on, it will change because the big beasts of Penguin Random House can never just be in charge. Mm. They never seem to find the next Fifty Shades or the next Elena Parente. No. They tend to hoover them up. Well, they do find them. They hoover them up, yeah. When someone else has, you know, done the done the groundwork, done the legwork. Well, that's, that's twas ever thus, though, wasn't it? You know? yeah, yeah, which is good, which yeah. is good. It's all in Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman, if yeah. you've read that one. Nobody knows anything. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about events. Lots of questions about events. Uh, Queeve McDonald says, what makes for a good and bad author event? Uh, let's have a look. Natalie Perry says, what's the best book launch you've attended? What makes it special you've done lots of events here what's what's if i'm an author looking to do an event what don't do a reading death by a thousand post-it notes <laughs> and if you do do a reading for god's sake for christ's sake prepare it we have a poet who recently decided to read and he took ages finding and now <clears throat> another one and oh where's that where's that gone <laughs> but preferably don't read at all unless you're an actor you can really give it some mm. don't go on too long um 
say hello to the booksellers because they're not just grunts moving chairs, you know. And, uh, yeah, turn up on time. Mm. Audio-visual is good. Have a bit of AV. And if you're taking questions, don't take them all from one person. (laughs) And what makes a good event is someone who's – well, I'll tell you what makes a bad event. I always – think this symbolizes what's wrong when an event goes wrong we had ned Sheeran, who for those who don't know is a sort of silky voiced cine um theater theater person real lovey a real lovey completely forgotten he won't leave any anything behind in culture i don't think <laughs> and he came and said well it's very nice to be um in chelmsford tonight in a in canterbury and he just delivered this stylized talk it could have been anywhere it could have been on the radio it could have been doing a reading it was so boring whereas if you read the audience if you look at people if you actually speak if you you know in buddhist terms arrive in the room the best example i've seen of that is terence stamp a 60s um film star who was a a villain in a diehard film and a a great amazing career him and julie christie celebrating a kink song and he was talking about about his autobiography and he came in and he just stood there silent for what must have been several minutes and he had warned me that he would do it he said i always do this just so they just so they arrive in the room but people were looking at each other like is he having a seizure what's happening <laughs> but once he did so once he did start talking boy they were there yeah they and he was friendly and he was good and he was engaging so that's a high risk strategy way of doing it but so often people want a bit of reassurance they want to be made made to feel safe and I think what the stand-ups always say is if you get them in the first couple of minutes, they'll love you. And you can say things that aren't funny and they'll laugh. Right. Excellent stuff. Right. Let's get to the big one. Yes. How do I get my book into Waterstones? This is what every author wants to know. Yeah. And some of these some of these will be published. Some of these will be self-published. Yep. So, you know. What's well, the- first of all, let's distinguish between books with a local um, flavour. So yep. a murder story set in Canterbury or Chelmsford. Um, and books that you want to sell in every single Waterstone. So I always um, bowl the ball back to the author and say, oh, this sounds really good. Um, my life in Buxton, <laughs> 1962 to 1968, or in its fiction, its faction. Um, I say, oh, it sounds good. Do you want it in every single Waterstone? And they say, of course, in which case I send them to the Waterstones website where there is a form and there is a way to apply to get your book into Waterstones. Right. Now, Waterstones will bang on your door if it's got a good Amazon rating and you've got it up the Amazon rankings. And there have been authors who've been quite cynical about getting all their mates to review it to get it up. You could do some wacky thing you can do on day one to get it up the Amazon rankings. Um, I've never tried to get a book into Waterstones, but your publisher, that's your publisher's job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're self-published, that's your job. Mm. And there ain't no one who can do it for you. And you might as well do it rather than hiring your mate Flossie who once had a job in marketing who's <laughs> just, you know, bound to be some blown out Joanna Lumley from Abvad person. <laughs> do it yourself. Um, approach head office if you really want it in every single shop. We had a sci-fi author who we rejected his book and then it became really big and we wish we'd taken it. So there are all those, if you believe in the book, it should be in every shop. And if you, I mean, ask yourself what you want out of it. Some authors are honest and say, look, I'm retired. I don't want to make any money out of it. I've written it. If a few of my friends and a few people read it, then that's fine by me. And if that's your realistic goal and you just want it to see it in the local shop, which is a wonderful thrill, then it has to have a local geographical link to that Waterstones. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, then why would we have a crime book which doesn't seem to 
um, or sci-fi book, which doesn't seem to be as good as Mark Stay's book, because there's only so much space on the shelf. <laughs> and just to give you the background, so it don't seem like an evil corporation, there was a time when we took all these local books, and there was a time when I had a shop checkbook, and we could write a check, get any book we wanted, and we'd set all sorts of books. Uh, but then this team of ladies processing all these invoices from Man in the Shed Publishing expanded. And Man in the Shed, who's very nice when he's selling you his book, can become a right nightmare when he hasn't been paid for 90 days. Right. And it can become a right nightmare if the book's not always face out. Mm. I've taken books and people come in and they face out the book for years afterwards. I could smack them one. Oh, what terrible behaviour. I know, <laughs> says Mark's day, looking shifty. <laughs> so we couldn't afford to process all those invoices. So we thought, right, we'll just deal with gardeners, which is something you must have heard of. Yeah. You should have heard of, you should make yourself hear of. If you want to get your book into Waterstones and you're not with a major publisher, get it into gardeners. Phone them up. They're in Sussex. They're the major book wholesaler. Mm. And we love dealing with gardeners, obviously, because they'll deliver in a normal account and we only got one invoice to pay. Mm. Get your book into gardeners. You won't like the margin that they take because obviously it has to go through them. They need to take something. And some authors have said to me, well, why can't you just pay me here out the till rather than me sending it to Sussex to gardeners and then out to here? But gardeners simplifies the invoicing process that I don't do and I'd hate to do if I was someone at head office. If it's got a local connection then by all means, you should approach your local Waterstones and say, this book is set in Canterbury, and I'd love to hear about it, because you must have at least four mates who are going to buy it. <laughs> it's the Canterbury murders or something. But please be realistic about the loyalty of your mates who will say they'll buy it, because yes. um, some of them might might not have. So we'll usually take a book like that, and there's a process whereby we can get your bank details and actually pay you if you just want it in one shop like that right but that means it's not a book that's going to sell in Thanet, Bromley, Maidstone, yeah. Folkestone, Waterstones particularly yeah. so I hope that's clear two sorts of books head office deal with one there's a buying team there and yes we can ask for certain books to be stocked in the shop that are national books uh, or there's a local approach your local shop if it's about a particular town brilliant listeners I'll put that link in the show notes so you can find that link and fill it flood waterstones head office <laughs> absolutely <laughs> with these requests uh, this has been absolutely brilliant thank you so much martin i really really appreciate it and um what's uh so we've got another one coming from you um what's what's next for you i mean will there be more books after the next one is 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 are you writer bookseller and are you the hyphenate now i don't know the proposal i wrote which my editor liked but some of the bean counters didn't like <laughs> penguin i hope they don't listen to this was all about how we've all got little shoe boxes that we collect seashells and stuff in and right. i was going right back to history and that seemed to resonate with a lot of people so i might that write, write that next but i'm definitely going to write another book about people and books in bookshops because i think it's a subject of huge interest that won't cross over with that. And I've got another format in mind um, that will hopefully be as, as strange as that. That's fantastic. All sounds brilliant. Martin, thank you so much for speaking to me so late on a, was it Wednesday it's night? It's romantic. <laughs> Bookshop at night. Primark. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much and hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. It was lovely. And thank you for all the questions. Oh, I didn't want that to end. I didn't want that to <laughs> no, end. I could. I guess I we'll could. have to go and read the book. Yeah, and uh, hopefully another book after. I, uh, as we were talking before we were recording, we both agree that Martin needs to do a tour of theatres across the country, just yes. telling stories about 
you know, book selling and books. I could listen oh, to him all night. It was hilarious, and I just love it. I just, I just love. I mean, the, the, the stories that Mein Kampf, like on the top of floors, <laughs> that the, the kids like coming into his store, the girl coming into his store and wanting to like find out about Narnia. And then knowing that because her mum had only bought an Ikea wardrobe at home. I, I just loved it. I loved it. But you know what I really found refreshing? I mean, here's, here's Martin, who's like, you know, been the longest standing manager of, you know, really the, the, the kind of the biggest book chain store in the UK. Um, and yet listening to him talking about indie bookshops and how much he's passionate about that that yeah. was so refreshing because like in the yeah. corporate world that you don't usually hear that it's usually like well it's an us and them and we don't talk about them and and it's a competition but i love the fact that there seems to be this kind of sense of family community yeah. for the whole of the booksellers across across the country which i love yeah no he's completely sincere about it as well totally sincere about it and i think it's um you know, it's testament to someone who's been working in and around books for so long, who before he was a bookseller, you know, used to find, like I said, he was frightened to go into Hatchards. And bookshops can be really intimidating. And we, I remember when I was at Waterstones, they they did a survey and they found that even then Waterstones could be more into So uh, they, I remember they were doing things like looking at uniforms and badges and things like that and what could make Waterstones feel a bit more friendly because they just want to get people through the door and they don't want it, it you know you might feel that people are being a bit judgmental about you and what you buy and i can tell you my i mean i've got I, my you know martin's manager of one of my local water centers one in thanet as well just up the road from me and they are the loveliest sweetest people they don't care what you read as long as you're reading you know yeah. so that's that's yeah. what matters we should put this into context as well because people who haven't listened to the podcast from the beginning might not realize that you started your life your life in books started in waterstones being employed what what how old were you take us back i was cracky it was uh must have been 92 1992 ish so i was 19 i think mm. and i was only supposed to stay for christmas it was a Christmas job at Waterstones in Dorking, uh, which was lovely because it was a really small shop. On the I High learned, Street? Yeah, South near Street. Near Marks and Spencers? No, no, it was South Street. Um, in and it was near. It was sort of opposite because I used to work in a hi-fi shop called Data Sound, and Ooh. I used to pop into uh, Waterstones on my lunch break, and I was in and out there all the time. They all knew me, and I saw a Christmas job coming, and I applied, and um, luckily really got it, and also luckily someone left uh and they said look do you want to stay on and because it was such a small shop i was able to do everything i ran every section i did every aspect of the job uh and then when claire got into drama school i went to the wimbledon store which was great experience for a sort of you know really busy london store uh and then when uh, we opened a store in epsom uh, I helped open that store as at Epsom for three years, and opening a store is a whole new experience of its own. But I, I did, I loved it. I really did love it. I was fit and trim then because you're constantly running up and down stairs carrying yeah. big piles of books. Oh it was only when I became a sales rep that I started putting on the pounds because you're sitting in a car, <laughs> in a car driving around. So, so yeah, it was, it was, it was terrific. I had such a good time. Um, but as Martin says, you know, it's it doesn't pay terribly well. And Claire and I wanted to have a family, so I sold myself for a company car. Uh, but look at me now. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, but it's interesting, isn't it? When you, when you, I always, I'm always fascinated in life, and I think everyone can relate to this in their own life. And that when you, you know, you walk past that advert, you know, Christmas help wanted, you have no idea 
what the universe has planned for you on the other side of that Christmas job. And it's kind of interesting because you went in, you went from Waterstones and you took a job in publishing, got involved. And and I kind of wonder, you know, had you not passed that little sign? Yeah. Do you ever think about that? Like where would you, the sliding door moment? Like where would you, would you be an author now? Would we even be doing this podcast? Would the bestseller experiment exist? You know, I I think, I think, I think it's very, very unlikely. And it's, um, yeah, it did set me off on a path and it, I loved books anyway. I love reading books, but the more you learn about the industry and the more you realize, actually, yeah, there's a way I can make a way into this. I can, it's, it's just ordinary people working really, really hard, you know? So it's, uh, it was, it, it gave me an insight to the industry that I'd never had before. And it made me start thinking that, yeah, maybe this is, maybe this is possible. Maybe I can do this. Yeah. So yeah, I, absolutely. I can wonder no as question. well with, with listeners like, and writers out there, who I mean, I think there's there's no writer that doesn't love a bookshop. I mean, it's part it's it's like it's like your conjoined twin in some ways if you're a writer. <laughs> I think I think the really interesting thing is is that when I think about working in a bookstore, or if I think about working in a library, or I see people work in a library, it often feels like this almost fantastical kind of job. It's like it, it's so different from say working in a grocery store or supermarket. There's there's something there is something magical about bookstores, and Martin alluded to this in the discussion you had. Um, I mean, how do you put your finger on that? What is it about it? There, there is and there isn't. I mean, it's one of these things we – I remember when I was an assistant manager at Waterstones, you know, we'd interview people for jobs, and people had a very airy-fairy kind of, uh, oh, it must be lovely to be surrounded by books and blah, blah. And But the first question you ask is, are you physically fit? How's your back? Because you're <laughs> going to spend your day lifting, hefting books around all day, you mm. know, putting them in returns, unpacking them, moving them around. It's really physical. Um, it's uh, it's very taxing on the mind as well because you have to be a bit of an expert on everything. You want to run a good pub quiz team, get some booksellers because they have a little knowledge of absolutely everything because they're constantly putting books away and right. reading books and, and going, oh, wow, I never knew about that. Let's have a quick look at that. So mm. they're constantly picking up little bits of knowledge everywhere. So it is it is magical in that you are dealing with the world's knowledge. You know, the thing with a supermarket or a grocer's is they have a fixed number of lines and it's the same, you know, every week it's a tin of beans. It's a tin of beans, a tin of beans, a tin of beans. Whereas in bookshops, you know, they carry more individual lines than any other high street store. Hmm. And you're expected to know about all of them, plus all the ones you don't have in stock. And you're uh, constantly getting new stuff coming through the door. That's different from the last thing. So even if, you know, you're, there was a, wasn't there a joke in The Simpsons where they there's an airport bookshop that only stocked Stephen King, Robert Ludlum, <laughs> someone else. <laughs> you know, even if you only stored those three authors, you'd still you'd still be going, wow, more new stuff, more new. I mean, Robert Ludlum, we were publishing him ten years after he died. You well, know, so- James, James Patterson comes out more often than the Beano each week, doesn't he, with his latest <laughs> novel. So um, let's talk about, um, I mean, there was, there was something caught my attention about the children and children's reading. And it was it was refreshing to hear, you know, Martin yes. say, ah, it's bunkum. You know, it's not. And, mm. I, you know, I want to I want to share this little story, a uh, little chat I had with my daughter in the car as I was listening to the interview, funnily enough, right, and that came right. up. And I turned to my daughter, and I've mentioned this before a few times on the podcast. But and I read this really. I read this interesting article on the BBC this week about how anime has taken over, like a, a, something about mm. anime has just exploded, exploded during COVID, and kids everywhere now. Every everyone's into anime at like you know nine, ten, twelve, whatever. And my daughter the same, just binge watching anime on Netflix constantly and loves it. But the thing that she's now doing is she's also picking up Wattpad 
because when she's finished a series, she wants mm. to go and read the fan fiction of the anime series. She can't get enough of it. So she goes on Wattpad and she reads, and there's literally, I mean, she couldn't read them in her lifetime, even at her age. Um, and, and I said to her today, I said, so here's a question for you. If you had the option of watching a new anime series on Netflix or reading an anime story online, what would you choose? And she had to, she stopped and she had to think about it. And she said, well, I'll do both, dad. I'll do both. I'd watch. And I said, well, no, you can't have both. I said, let's say you only could do one. I'm like, you can't sit on the fence. What would you do? And she said, well, I'd read the, I'd read the book. And I was like, oh my gosh, like how many kids around the world is this happening to where, yes, we know that Netflix and there's TV and there's a huge competition, but I think you know, at the back end of it, we're getting more children reading because of... Yeah, well, as Martin said, the manga section in stores exploded. Right. Because, exactly. you know, it used to be a specialist thing. You'd only get it from certain stores or you'd have to import it from overseas. But now every wall stands has a manga section. Mm. And, you know, these are books that, because, you know, the Japanese read from uh, right to left and back to front, you know, th there's even more of a challenge there. But people devour this stuff. They absolutely love it. And there's also, because some of these are super violent and super, you know, well, gory and yeah. what have you, there's that added thing of, yeah, parents disapprove of this. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So I, know. A, I know what you mean. I saw yeah. I saw a t I saw a T-shirt today. It said "Read Banned Books," and I really want to get that T-shirt now. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> but here's here's another theory. You see, booksellers look at everything numerically. They look at the spreadsheets, and it's all based on numbers. And you look at charts, and you look at Amazon, and it's all based on numbers. There's something everyone's missing, and that has never happened before in 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 twenty years, and that is that. We always just assume that what people are reading is what people are what people are buying. How many books have been sold? Nowadays, when you think about things like Wattpad, there are thousands. I mean, I don't even know hundreds of thousands of free books that millions of kids are reading, and that's not getting recorded yeah, in any of the register. statistics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what's happening there? Because actually, when you add that children's book sales, I think are up. Am I right? Over COVID. Oh, I mean, yeah. I think books sell everything. And then you add all the free stuff that the kids are reading and maybe increase in library loans. I don't know. That's probably another thing over COVID that might have happened or maybe not actually. But but yeah, I think it's probably there's probably more reading happening than we've ever experienced. It's just we can't measure it. I think I mean, this is the thing we can have a. a there are people who just think the world is going to hell in a handcart, but actually we're all living longer, we're all fitter and healthier, and there is more literacy. Now that's not to say it's been it's been eradicated. There are still children in poverty and you know, children who can't read and we need to help them given every opportunity we can. But mm. you know what? More kids are reading than ever. They're reading more diverse stuff than ever. They're not all just reading David Williams, and everyone worries about that. But they are, like you say, they're finding other avenues to to find stuff to read, and it's um, it's really exciting. It's really thrilling, and yeah. it's great to see to see that happen. And it's um, I I you know it it makes me very very happy and hopeful for the future. Yeah, it's great time to be alive as an author, folks. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Now, Mark, I need, do need to ask you something. Secondhand bookshop. This is our little reminisce, by the way. We're going to go into a little nostalgia. If anyone ever wants to go and check this out, maybe there can be a best-seller experiment tour in Leatherhead where they can go and visit the new restaurant. But this secondhand bookshop you mentioned, when you yes. talked about, I... You know when, the one. I know. I, I don't even just know the one. I lived in that store. It was on that, the corner of the one-way system. I know. And it was, what was it, it called? Was, 
It was wasn't it called the Mole Bookshop because it's in Mole, Mole Valley, the yeah. Mole Valley Bookshop, the, yeah, Mole, the Mole, Mole Valley Bookshop. Bookshop. And and also what I failed to mention is there was a rack of dirty magazines. I was, there was, <laughs> okay, so this was the bit I was going to add to the story, Mark. Talking I'm about you, I'm books. glad you brought it up. I'm glad you brought it up. As 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 young kid, I used to get the bus. Um, I used to walk into Leatherhead um, to get the bus, and the bus stop was literally it was equidistant between. Our price records, which is where I oh, get my yeah. new tape of Erasure or whatever the new album was, you know, to listen on the bus home in my little, you know, those, do you remember those little headphones you used to have with the Walkman, the little kind of I did, I did a Christmas, I did a Christmas at our price as well, but that's another story. Oh, yeah, okay, well, here yeah. we go. <laughs> there is no bounds to your experience. But on the other side of the bus stop, literally a few doors away, was uh, was the mole mole bookstore, and I used yeah. to go in there, and that that smell of musty, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it would hit you. I mean, let's talk about book sniffing for a minute. When you sniff <laughs> a new book, it's it's a it's a very pleasant, and I'm sure some kind of serotonin here, and maybe there's some form of ink addiction that's going on here, but. When we used to walk into this bookstore in Leatherhead, you know the musty smell. You know the kind of like I've, I've got yeah, and and also pipe smell. I'm just, I've got some of the books. Hang on, yeah. wait, I'm going to get. It them. was utterly incredible. So what we would do is we'd walk in there and it would hit you, and it was it was kind of pretty. It's pretty gross. It's a bit like when you get a book out of your at, a box out of your attic, and your attic's got a bit a bit of a leak. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That musty. Yeah. Imagine that in the entire bookshop. That was this bookshop. I got I got all my stainless steel rat books from there. Let's have a look. Yeah, stainless uh, steel rats. Yeah, Harry Harrison. Never... These are these are brilliant. These are, you know, uh, the idea of um, set a crook to catch a crook. This is that in space. Oh, and this okay. is kind of charming. Love By it. By the way, if anyone's making a TV series or movie of these, I want to write it. Um, but yeah, I've even written my name in there. Look, M Stay. Oh, uh, but, yeah, but look how, how old yellow... you been when you bought that? Oh. 10, 11, 12, 10, 11. Maybe. Give it a smell quickly and just tell me, can you smell the bookstore? Oh, man, I can. I it's really there, can. you see? You see, this is the thing people don't realise about books, is books oh. Books have the memory <laughs> of the place where you... Like, like, you're right back there, I can see it, Mark. You're it's just having so a moment. You're so having weird. a moment, it's there. So everyone, go and find a real old musty book from your childhood and, and really get into the, the spine of it and smell it. I've written, Mark Stay is a stainless steel rat at the bottom here. I'm such a... <laughs> Pratt. <laughs> I used to go in there and buy my fighting fantasy books and then I'd have to buy a, a new eraser yeah. from WH Smith to rub out all of the, <laughs> the front pages where people had done oh. people had done their um scores and things. If anyone was a fighting fantasy um you know fan, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. If not, you'll think I'm completely weird. But um there, there is logic behind it. But but do find go find everyone, go now. Go pause, <laughs> pause the podcast, go to your bookshop bookshop go to your bookshelf pick out the oldest book that you can find on it and give it a sniff and see if it brings you back to the very place that you may have bought that book it's wonderful oh, it's like time travel it's time travel in a, in, a, in, a, in a book well it's it's that proustian uh was it madeline rush kind of thing and it happens in um uh that pixar movie uh ratatouille as well when he eats the ratatouille it transports you back it's, Love it's it. totally brilliant who knew that was oh happen? wow yeah we're gonna have to do a nostalgia episode i'm sorry folks but actually um on this note whilst mark and i reminisce about our our school days and hanging out in bookstores where if you took a right and a left and a right and a left down at the very end of that section there was a box of dirty mags and it was like like it was a carousel it was a carousel it was because i I would occasionally sort of walk past it and just as you walk past it you get a crick in your neck as you go oh 
Oh my gosh! New, the new days Mayfair is in pre- <laughs> the days of puberty, right? I mean, you could talk about it, but um, you know, it, it's absolutely brilliant. What I want people to, to to do is, I want people to write into us and tell us about their favourite bookstore. Yes. Now, it doesn't have to be from your childhood, but it'd be great if it was. And I think there's a nostalgia thing that we love about this podcast. We're all about nostalgia. Um, but write in and tell us, firstly, what your favourite bookstore is and why. And if that bookstore mm. is, is still av- around today, un- unfortunately, unlike the one we're talking about, which which went under, I think. It, it, well, I it think he retired. I think opened, he retired. They opened, the, they opened a posh version of the store next. Do you remember that? They had another a shop version of it next to it, which was kind of like a... They upgraded it and it was all like mm. properly done and it wasn't the musty bookstore, but both of them shut. But whatever your favourite bookstore is, um, we want to know where it where it was. What was happening in your life when you were there? Were you travelling? Was it like Mark and I in your childhood, your local bookstore? Um, and we want to know why it was your favourite bookstore. What was, what was it that made it magical to you? So write that in. And, and you know what? We'll, 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 we'll name check some of these on the podcast because <laughs> we'll do a little themed um, over the next few weeks where we, we mention these, you know, a couple of weeks. So send them in. Um, you can do it on Twitter. Uh, you can you can DM us on Twitter if you know what that is. Mm. Uh, you can drop us an email by coming to the website and clicking on the contact us form and just just fill out that form and, and send it send it to us. Um, or you can come onto the Facebook page um, uh, on Facebook where you can just pop us a message or start a discussion there about your favourite bookstore. We would love love to hear about that. So, Mr. Say, what else hit you? Uh, Amazon bookstores closing. I didn't know about this. What, what what was this about Amazon bookstores? I missed this. <clears throat> well, they they uh, they opened a few as an experiment, uh, and they only store books with a four and a half star rating average oh. or more. And there are no staff in them. The idea is you go in and you you know you register or something, and then you take the book and you walk out, and it gets charged to your account. But I think Amazon there have completely missed the point of bookstores, which is what Martin was talking about, which is curation, mm. which is the bookseller will put on display at the front the books that they personally love. And because uh, Amazon does the other thing, uh, does the opposite thing. Amazon tracks your every single move, knows everything you do, knows all the books that you've ever clicked on and uses an algorithm and says, okay, Mark likes the stainless steel wrap books. Let's send him, first of all, make sure he's got all of them, send him m- mailings about these. And then, Using a, you know, spider algorithms will go out and go, okay, and this is a bit like that and that is a bit, let's send in mailing. So there is a curation there, but it's it's an algorithm. It's completely yeah. impersonal. It gets it wrong a lot more. And it's not as if Amazon are saying, I've read this and I love it. And that's what you get in a bookshop. Get Hearing Martin talking about that edition of uh, Arabian Nights that he found in another bookstore, loved it so much, brought it to his bookshop and said, look, this looks terrific. I'm really excited by this. Mm. That is a thrill. That That is word of mouth uh, on a high street kind of environment. And that is really, really exciting. You get that in record stores as well. You know, you get you get people in record stores or gaming stores going, you know, I was thrilled by this. So that's that's why I think bookshops are still thriving because we, we've all got a bit fed up with the Amazon algorithm, uh, just, you know, constantly banging us over the head with stuff they think we like. Whereas the bookshops are saying, I loved this. I think you might love it too. And if Mm. they don't, then you can at least have a conversation with the bookseller and say, here are the other things I enjoyed. And they might be able to discover something that you, you know, 
that serendipity of just being in the same room with someone and then well, going, is. have it, you tried this? Yeah, it's the human experience. Well, it's a social It's a social moment in your, in your mm. day, which we need as human beings. And I think the oh, more yeah. that we move online, the more we Zoom and the more we homework and the more we buy things online, um, the, the more that kind of experience becomes like vinyl. You know, mm. it's like, oh, I really crave going back to the days when we used to speak with people. So I do like that. I do like that. But you know what's interesting about curation? I was in my local chapters, which is one of my favourite hangouts, um, mm-hmm. in on Vancouver Island, a massive bookstore, although it's kind of more half books, half haberdashery, I'd call it. Like you know, I, bought a, <laughs> I actually bought a puzzle, ironically, um, I bought a puzzle of a of a bookstore <laughs> in chapters last year, a thousand piece puzzle. It's my thing. It's my way of de- decompressing after a hard right. day. But, and it's of the it's called the world's greatest bookstore, ironically. Um, and it's a beautiful puzzle. I saw my friend did, did it uh, and posted it on Facebook, and I thought that's a nice puzzle. And then I saw it in chapters when I was wandering around <laughs> trying to find my daughter. But um, the the interesting thing is, is I as I walked into the front of chapters, the first table that was in front of me said trending on tiktok and i thought interesting because then hearing when martin talked about tiktok being the biggest thing that's happened to Mm. to you know books since jk rowling or harry potter absolutely fascinating because i didn't quite i didn't quite realize just how huge book clubs um and book recommendations had taken off on tiktok and i know you've been on it a little bit yourself haven't you I know, but I felt like an old man dancing at a disco. It was, it was, oh man, it was exhausting. Oh, and you see, on the dance floor again. Yeah, he's like, oh, dad, sit down. Oh my God. Um, so so I don't know, I, I dabbled. I'm not sure I'm going to go back. But the fact is, I think it's, it, I, I'm not sure TikTok is for authors. I think it's for readers. I think it's for people going, again, that curation, that thing of going, I love this. You check it out. Do you know, know what? We've talked about how music is always slightly ahead of the publishing industry. Well, mm. uh, pe- people on people on TikTok, like bands on TikTok, there's a band called Mother Mother in, in Vancouver who have been a very you know well-known Canadian band, um, you know, dabbled a bit in America, but not much. One of their, uh, one of my favourite tracks of theirs, Hayloft, went viral on TikTok and started getting used on all of like, you know, the a lot of these shorts it's now there's on instagram stories oh, reels yeah. facebook shorts youtube shorts it's all happening but you use a little bit of music on and 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 these become viral and you know yeah. it's completely and utterly changed the life of this band they have gone their lo- their latest tour is completely sold out in north america now and they've got mi- yeah. like multi millions of listens on spotify so it's TikTok is for readers, but from a marketing perspective, it could be life-changing for an author if your book goes viral on TikTok. Yeah. And, and looking at this table, it was like bonkers. I was looking at all these authors. I, I barely recognized any of the names. They weren't the kind of mm. bestseller names that we would kind of like think about on the on the show. But, you know, how many bestsellers are going to come from that? It's going to yeah. be – we do need to get someone. If you've had massive success on TikTok – we want you on the podcast. Yes. Chuck us your name. We want to hear about it. And we'll find out a bit about your journey. Because I think um, going viral on TikTok, getting a bestseller via TikTok, something we all need to learn a bit more about for sure. Mm. Mm. Excellent stuff. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting is this idea about local elements in your book. You know, if you, had a, if you could somehow <laughs> tie in, which I basically think is a no-brainer for every single author. Like unless you're doing some sci-fi, far and away distant world. Yeah. 
create some, just make it up, some local links so that you can at least get the book into hey, your local bookstore. You're looking at him. You're looking, I invented yeah. a whole bloody Kentish village. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. Uh, we've got a few interviews coming up in the next few weeks of people who have found a corner of the UK and claimed it for their own, you know. So we, I love got, it. Yeah, well, it's uh, and and you know we've had you know we've had Julie Wasmer on here who write, sets all her books in in Whitstable, you know, mm-hmm. and because of that she's able to branch out to all the local bookshops in, in Kent and say there's a kind of local angle yeah. to it. Or so, so it, yeah. can, it can still be a it can be a best selling national or international novel with a local feel. It's the kind yeah. of thing, and I and I do feel that you know. When we talk about getting bestsellers and going broad, I mean, obviously, you have to kind of get success really on a national level to to become a bestseller. But there's also this idea of a nucleus. Like, you do have to start somewhere. And when Mm. people just go scatterground approach and they just, you know, launch their book nationally and it just goes out to everyone, there's no actual focus of trying to build up a nucleus. And, you know, a lot of books have become popular because they've, they've started locally and they've kind of grown outwards with word of mouth. And having that in addition to putting your book you know on amazon nationally is a really good tactic and i think everyone yeah. should be thinking about that i remember we when we had liz fennick on the podcast because she writes all about cornwall and she's you know she's an american living in cornwall uh and she was published by ryan and i just remember the uh, the field sales team saying this author we put 50 copies of a book into corner shops and boom they're gone and we keep doing it and we keep doing it. So people are liking these books. So you're right. The absolute that nucleus in Cornwall helped bring her to our attention and then, you know, gave us some focus. And we thought, yeah, actually, let's see if the rest of the world wants to read these yeah. books. And, so think about you know, think, think about the nucleus, folks. This is really important. Now, Mark, I learned a new term today. It's a bookseller term. And uh, I know of it. I just didn't realize it was called it. I love it. It's called face out or facing out. Oh yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. brilliant. Now I will I will admit the other day when I was in chapters, I wandered over to the children's section and I saw my you know Jenny's last monster book no longer is on the kind of like you know uh, you know facing out on the thing, but it's in but they did have a few faces out and I picked a copy and I accidentally put it back in the wrong place facing out. Uh, oh, I, I believe no. this is something that you may have witnessed people doing with your book. Is that right in, in bookstores? I I, ref- I refuse to answer that on the grounds that. Incriminate me. <laughs> okay, so here's a question. I want to. I want to ask the following question to our writers listening to this today. We a, all do it. I know. No. 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 It goes beyond this, though. This is great, right? Okay. So here's the question. I want everyone to write in and tell us. Okay, we're just going to assume that everyone does it. Okay, mm. guilt guilty as charged. But but if you have done it, has anything ever happened whilst you're doing it? Have you been caught doing it by one of the <laughs> members of staff? And what happened? Were you were you interrogated? Were you kicked out of the bookstore? Did you then get into a conversation and, and say, actually, it's my book? Or here's another question. Have you ever seen, have you ever faced out one of your books and seen someone else pick it up? Because this is the other thing. Who's hung around and just watched, desperately waiting for That's, somebody? To, and then have you tragic. even gone? <laughs> have you even gone to the extent that when somebody picks your book up in a bookstore and starts flicking through it, you've actually gone up to engage with them and you've pretended, here we go, <laughs> to be someone who's read the book and tell them how great it is yeah, or well, some other good. story. I want to hear, because I'm sure there's some brilliant stories out there and we should be sharing these with the world. My daughter went into Forbidden Planet and someone picked Robot Overlords up and she said, my dad wrote that. <laughs> 
And they looked at her <laughs> as if she was mad. And she went, no, no, we really did. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> but they I did buy it. it. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the other thing is, as a bookseller, you get quite a good radar for shoplifters because uh, yeah. you, people shoplift to order in bookshops. They go for the, you know, the, the Times Atlas that's 80 quid or the box uh, set or really? whatever, you know. They, um, so, yeah, you have to – you get a quite good radar. But every now and then you see people – Acting furtive in the fiction section, and you think, are they shut? Oh no, it's just an author just looking facing for their own out. book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's. I'm wondering if someone's ever been like accused of shoplifting, lifting because they were like acting shady in a bookstore. I'm sure they've got to be stories. So please share them with us, folks. We want to hear them. Or this is, rever- this is all reverse shoplifting, where you put your books on the shelves in the hope that you'll sell a few copies, <laughs> and they go, or, or we, we or don't reverse- stop. This was. <laughs> yeah, reverse PR where Don't you put try your, it. reverse PR where you put your you put you nestle your book in between all the Stephen King books. Take a photo of it, take the book, walk out with it, and then you get asked. You get caught by the security guard for shoplifting your own book that's not even for sale in the bookstore. <laughs> Brilliant! Come on, folks, give us your stories. You want to hear about them? Uh, there's more than there's probably more than enough to fill a whole another book actually um, on these. So that's absolutely brilliant. Mm. But um, oh, we could talk about this forever, and we will. We'll keep talking about bookstores because it is. I love bookstores. I love libraries. Um, we want to hear about your favourite ones. But um, yeah, is there something magical? I think I don't think we ever lose that kind of childlike. It's you know Christmas every day in a bookstore. There's that feeling of walking in and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. seeing what you might discover. Brilliant stuff. So, Mister Stay, um, what's been happening on social media this week? Lots of good news. Lots of good news. Uh, I enjoyed this one from Kate Baker, who is uh, one of our academates on the Bestseller Academy. She updated in the Hive. She said, and she's written this like an exchange of dialogue, which is you'll, you'll know why. She's a voice from downstairs. What's so funny? Me. I'm doing the dialogue formatting course on the Bestseller Academy. Husband. But why are you cackling so loudly? Because the example content is genius, I think, and really bloody enlightening. Are you learning anything? Yeah, a lot of it is about consistency and choosing what formatting to use and to bloody well stick to it. And Kate says, why didn't I have this when I was writing that other novel? Oh, well, at least I've copied and pasted all the wonderful examples into a Word document, printed them off and blue tapped them to the wall before I start the next. No excuses now. This course is brilliant and way better explained than any how-to book I've bought in the past. Thank you for that, Kate. I worked very hard. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant, Kate. Love that. Um, uh, And we had a great update from Charlotte Rosemore, who says, I can touch type. She said, uh, so this is in the wins section on the Academy. We asked people to post their wins. And she said, whilst transcribing my handwritten notes today, I discovered I can type without looking at the keyboard. Didn't have this skill when I started my novel six months ago, so must have picked it up along the way without even realising it. It's exciting because now I'm wondering what other skills I've been gaining without even consciously realising. So the Academy Mm. doesn't just teach you to write. You you might learn to type as well. That's a big thing on the Academy. That's come up a lot, actually, about the value. Whatever age you're at, I've been learning it in my 40s, relearning it really properly. And the difference it can make to your word count, the difference it can make to uh, the the reduced cost in just proofing your novel, because you're looking at the screen rather than looking at your keyboard. Like, I think this is something campaign that we're all on in the academy to get people to, to touch type or improve their typing speed as well. It's like one of the basic skills that we should all have as writers. Absolutely. And uh, Jeff White, who writes as G.M. White, a long time uh, supporter of the podcast, a member of the Bestseller Experiment Group on Facebook. He's updated the covers for his fantasy series, The Swordsman's Lament, The Swordsman's Descent, The Swordsman's Intent. And they look absolutely 
bloody brilliant. They're really, really good. And that's a trilogy covers, but... that actually rhymes. I've not think I don't yeah. think I've ever heard of a trilogy that rhymes before. That's brilliant. But he says he says he's been you know he he shared a chart with us of his sales and there's a sudden enormous spike. And that was the day he put the new covers up. So that really, he's been he's been using a, a funnily enough, he's it's a company called Get Covers, and they're Ukrainian, and they're still operating despite everything wow. that's happening over there. And that he got them; these weren't expensive. He said they're like thirty five dollars, and it's just transformed his sales. We've mentioned this so many times. What happens with cover art? Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check out Jeff's covers, and he's been tweeting about where he got these from as well. So do check them Fantastic. out. Fantastic! All these great things you learn about in the in the bxp team group fantastic i love it and also support like if you get a chance if you're looking for a cover go support ukrainian business right now i think that's brilliant i've heard in canada a lot of people have been booking airbnbs in ukraine with no intention of obviously ever staying there it's the way of getting money getting money to the people the people out there i think that's absolutely fantastic so yeah yeah. a worthy cause for sure well if if you've got any good news, folks, drop us a line. Uh, we're our bestseller experiment on Facebook. We're Twitter and Instagram. We're at bestseller XP or pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com. Look for the contact tab and drop us a line. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating. Please subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. One thing I'm going to start doing as well on the weekly social media, I'm going to start putting a, a link to episode one because we've we're going to hit episode 400 this year. So it's becoming more and more difficult to find episode one. So if you want to start from the beginning, I'm going to start putting links on our, our Twitter stream. So find us on at Bestseller XP so you can start from day one and follow this whole journey from the very, very beginning. Fantastic. And we would like to introduce a new spotlight this week. Another oh, yes. incredible Academy member, Lynn Clark. And Lynn writes in fantasy... Uh, YA and NA. Uh, Lynn's from London in England. She lives there with her husband Bob and a mad black cat Millie. And uh, today we're, we're featuring a spotlight, which is her work in progress, a YA fantasy called The Honey Scent of Iron. Isn't that a great name, Mark? The Honey it is Honeyed the Scent honey of scent Iron. And I've read bits of it. I've had the privilege of reading bits of it because she. Uh, she regularly, I mean, she's such a great member of the Academy and she regularly contributes to the one power punch-ups that we do. So I've I've seen bits of this. I've read bits of this. It's so beautifully written. It's such a wonderfully realised world and great, great fantasy and, and written from the heart. So I, I, I do love it. What I've read, I've absolutely loved. Fantastic. Now, um, Lynn has a pen name. Lynn's pen name is Jocelyn Sordoni. And, and this is her, this is her, blurb let's read it out shane is 17 and has been mercilessly bullied at her magic school for six years she's sure if she can't wheedle a leadership from henny her estranged grandmother and her life would be perfect and the bullies will all disappear but a stupid prank backfires and she's expelled scuppering her plans she's discovered henny's a frightful leader And when she exposes Henny's plans to crush the other leaders in the realm, Henny imprisons and tortures Shane. A raging battle ensues and Shane and her allies win. They offer Shane the leadership, but she ponders, if that's what leadership and power makes someone do, would she end up the same as the bullies she thought she'd left behind? Dun, dun, dun. So, folks, if you are interested, we are are spotlighting um, Jocelyn Sordoni, as a pen name of Lynn Clark. And if you're an agent, if you're a publisher, 
if you're interested in finding out more about this book, um, it's available to be for pitching right now. So do pop along to uh, joesordoni.co.uk. That's J-O-S-O-R-D-O-N-I.co.uk. Or on Instagram and Twitter, you can find her at joesordoni. So if you're interested in finding out more, please do. Links in the show notes for those as well. So nice and easy to find. We've also got links in the show notes for where to uh, get your book onto Waterstones and also a link to Gardeners. Gardeners have a whole document about supplying Waterstones as a downloadable PDF. It's really, really useful. So links for those in the show notes That's as well. That's a brilliant and point, actually, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. And also, if you're not in the UK, I mean, Gardeners, I'm, I'm assuming, is probably a UK-centric uh, distributor yeah, yeah, yeah. but i've discovered in canada and in every other country there is an equivalent of those so go find out who that is you know who's the independent distributor or the national distributor or the biggest distributor in your country because um we did the same thing you just go out you contact them you send them a copy of your book and then they they think about you know getting it out there and they can get it into those big bookstores as well so even as an indie author you can you can actually get really serious reach if they like the look of your book yeah. and, and they also want to know a bit about the marketing you're doing behind that you know, if you're getting on the bestseller experiment and getting a mention, for example, that kind of stuff. So, you know, do do look into it because people often think, oh, I've got I've either, you know, I've either got to stick it on Amazon or I've got to get a deal. Well, there's there's these kind of like opportunities in between as well. So, folks, have Absolutely. a fantastic writing week. Do find us uh, at bestsellerexperiment.com and we look forward to chatting with you all again next week. And Mark, absolute pleasure. Have a great week, sir. And it's a goodbye from Mark One. And a goodbye from Mark Tool. Teddy bye. Goodbye. Bye.